I invite you to get your Bibles out this morning. We are going to be looking at a number of verses as we celebrate our risen Lord Jesus on Easter Sunday. I hope you guys enjoy this sermon and are built up and encouraged. So, first verse we're going to look at is I'm going to begin with an actual prophecy by Jesus Christ. It's in Mark 13, 1 through 2. One through two. Here he is uh, foretelling or prophesying of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It says, and as he came out of the temple, this is Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The temple at that time in Jerusalem was quite a, an architectural uh, structure. It took years to build, and it was really quite impressive. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is reference to the fall of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And in April 70 AD, roughly about 30 or 35 years after this event we just read, this event played out. You've heard me talk about it before. It was immediately in April of 70 AD, after the Passover, there was roughly about a million people. Uh, Jews had come from all other countries to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so there was about a million people in Jerusalem at the time, just filled with people. It was when this Roman army began the siege on Jerusalem in April of 70 AD. And it was with sneering rejection that these Jewish religious zealots, really, just rebuffed every attempt by the Roman army, every proposal they sent of surrender. Now, the general at the time was a General Titus. He was accompanied with the great historian, a believer, by the name of Josephus. Josephus was like the mediator. He would interpret uh, what the Roman message was to the Jews and the Jewish message back to the Romans. And these religious Jewish zealots would rejected every attempt, every proposal by General Titus. In fact, they even launched defensive attacks along the Kidron Valley. Uh, any attack or, or any suggestion, rather, of surrender by their own, the Jews would say, that's surrender. These zealots would strike them down. So you have just this very obstinate people. And as the difficulties multiplied for the Jews in Jerusalem at that time, sadly, their courage increased. Now, in response to this Jewish rebellion, the Romans were crucifying as many as 500 Jewish prisoners a day. In order to get the wood for these crucifixes that they would build, they were literally stripping the land around Jerusalem of its trees to build these crosses upon which they were crucifying all of these Jewish prisoners. It was quite a scene. Now, this only enraged the zealots even more. 
and their hearts were not even touched, not even softened at all, when a famine began to rage inside the walls of Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands were dying daily. The story is told of a woman who was so hungry that she roasted her child in order to live. It's sad when you hear stories like that, but history records no other instance that I'm aware of, of such obstinate rejection and resistance, of desperate bravery and such contempt for death. But in July of that same year, the city was taken by surprise, and this opened the way for the temple to be destroyed. Now, they were offering daily sacrifices up to that time. On July 10th, that's when the daily sacrifices that were offered at the altar burnt offering uh, were going on. They ceased at that time because all hands were needed in defense of the temple. But the last and greatest sacrifice at the altar burnt offerings in the temple were thousands of Jews that were crowding around the altar, defending it, and were struck down, their blood was shed by the Roman army. Now, General Titus, according to the historian Josephus, wanted to keep the temple because it was such a beautiful architectural structure. It was really something to see, quite magnificent. But his armies wanted to burn it down. And he the story goes that General Titus himself, when he saw that the temple was up in flames, that the Holy of Holies inside the temple was going to burn, he actually fought through the flames and the smoke and tried to arrest and put down the fires. But the destruction, as we know, was, was decreed and determined by a higher authority, by God himself. His own soldiers, they were just roused to madness because of the stubbornness of the Jewish resistance and the greed that was in their hearts for the golden treasures that lie within, they wanted to burn it down. And the story is told that the legions of Romans' armies vied and, and, and fought to enrage and to inflame and fan the flames of the fires to build or to burn down the temple. In a matter of time, very soon, the whole structure was in, in a blaze. And it was burned on August 70 AD, August 10th, that was the same day of the year which tradition holds that the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar hundreds of years earlier. Now, you've heard me preach on this before and reference this, but you have never heard me preach on what happened after this. Now, there is no greater honor that could be bestowed on any conquering Roman general or Roman citizen than to be accorded by the Senate what was called a triumph. Now, history tells us, and you can read to this, that General Lucius Mummius, say that again, General Lucius Mummius, he conquered the region of Achaia, which included the city of Corinth, which I know you're familiar with. Corinth was the last place that the, the Greek empire ruled. And by conquering that, all of the Greece was now under 
Roman rule. And of course, the Greek Empire is what preceded the Roman Empire. Because this great victory, Mummius was accorded a triumph. General Pompey, a general Caesar, was also accorded a triumph. And history tells us that at the destruction of Jerusalem and all of Judea, General Titus was also accorded a triumph by the Senate. Now, these were impressive parades in, 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 in displays of public spectacles. And it was very rare that this happened. And this is what a, a Roman triumph looked like. And what you're going to hear may sound a little lavish or a little extreme, but this is actually what happened. First, the city officials and the Senate marched through Rome up to the capital, because the politicians always have to have their say in things. And lining the streets were thousands and thousands of Roman citizens. On top of those thousands and thousands of Roman citizens, on housetops, rooftops, and hanging out windows were other Roman citizens watching the Senate and their city officials pass by in all their, their glory. Behind them were the trumpeteers. And the trumpeteers were just heralding, announcing what was coming next. Now behind them came the spoils taken from the conquered land. So, what was taken from Jerusalem? Well, do you remember what the menorah is? It was that seven-branched candle that the Jews used in, during Passover, I believe. That was taken, history tells us. The golden table of showbread from the temple and the golden trumpets were taken. They were put on display all the way through Rome. Now, the Romans even painted pictures of the conquered lands. And they even, yes, folks, made little miniature models of the city of Jerusalem and of the region and put that on display, showing what they had conquered. It was really quite impressive. Following that was a white bull. The white bull was offered as a sacrifice to appease their gods. That was followed by musicians and priests. And the priests were carrying censers that were full of incense, and you've probably seen this before, that they would wave back and forth. And the burning incense would fill the air with a sweet-smelling aroma. And that prepared the way, finally, for the general. The conquering general rode through the streets of Rome up to the capital steps, being pulled along by four milk-white horses. Now, this conquering general would wear purple and gold. He would carry in his hand an ivory scepter that had the Roman eagle on top of it. And he was accompanied by a slave. And the slave held above his head the crown of Jupiter. Behind him rode his family. And behind the family was the army. Dressed in, in full decorated uniforms. And they would shout throughout the streets, Triumph! 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 Behind them were the rest of the captives in wagons full of booty. 
Now, all the captives, they knew that their fate lied in one of three ways. One was they would, after this triumph, this parade, that they'd be executed, or that they would be put in the gladiator games, which meant, of course, certain death, or they'd be sold as slaves. That's what happened after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, a triumph. Now, in our sermon series entitled Empty, again, the first sermon was Resurrection Repercussions Part 1. This sermon is Resurrection Repercussions Part 3. I talked about the impact of the resurrection on the Godhead, on the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the impact of the resurrection on God the Father was that he had prophesied, it was his plan, that from the line of the woman, meaning Eve, would come a redeemer, a savior, who would crush the head mean crush the head of Satan at the cross. Now, would God keep his word? Because his very character was on trial. And at the resurrection of his son, the character of God was vindicated. I said that this resurrection impacted God the Son. He's the firstborn from the dead. Therefore, he has preeminent rank in all things and over everything. He was also declared to be Lord and the Son of God by his resurrection. And because the Son of God was resurrected from the dead, he went to the Father, the Holy Spirit was sent. And he can do his work of convicting unbelievers of their sin, of their lack of righteousness, and of the judgment that is coming. And for believers, the Spirit gives guidance to us. None of that would be possible if there was no resurrection. But there was a resurrection. It even impacted the angels. That was last week's sermon. That because of the resurrection, holy angels worship and serve the Son of God. And fallen angels are completely subject to Him. This morning, we're going to look at the impact of the resurrection on humanity. How far-reaching are the implications of the resurrection? I hope you're beginning to see by now that they are very far-reaching. I have never done this much study and research into the resurrection. It's been quite an education for me, and I hope you're enjoying this too. So you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. This is what we read. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians. It says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so he might fill all things. Now that phrase, when he ascended on high, he laid captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men, chapter 4, verse 8, Paul is quoting Psalm 68, 18. The psalmist writes, you have ascended on high, 
You've led captive your captives. You've received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, Psalm 68 is a picture of God being a conquering hero, and he makes war upon his enemies. And of course, God is always victorious. And after his victory, he ascends the Mount of Victory, ascends the Hill of Victory. That's the picture that the psalmist writes. So, for example, in what the psalmist would also be referring to, is when a king of Israel, when you think of a king of Israel, think of King David or King Solomon, perhaps the two most popular kings in the history of Israel, when they would make war upon their enemies and they would be victorious, they would ascend the hills of Mount Zion. The peoples would be out there in the streets hailing them as kings. They would be on the steed or the horse that they were victorious in during their battle. And behind them would be two things. One would be the spoils of war, the captives from the conquered land and then the wagons full of booty. But there would also be a second group of people. Look at verse 8, Ephesians 4. This is what it says. He led captive a host of captives. Now, what does he mean when he says he led captive a host of captives? Well, he would recapture the captives. See, many times other nations, when they would, had conquered Israel, they would take captive prisoners, and they would have, hold them as slaves or would keep them in prison. And when the kings of Israel would conquer these lands... They freed those captives, and they would bring them back to their homeland. So the conquering hero has captives in one hand of the conquered nation, and freed slaves or freed prisoners of war that were his own people, and they were released and set free. And it was quite a joyous scene that perhaps family members were reunited in Israel. Now, that's Psalm 68, and that is precisely what Paul sees here in terms of Jesus Christ in Ephesians 4. Jesus went to war with Satan at the cross and was victorious. He went to war against the fallen angels on the cross and was victorious. And his resurrection from the dead proves this. Now, after his death on the cross, Jesus was resurrected. We know that. And he ascended the Mount of Victory. And he had behind him the spoils of war. Now, you know what the spoils of war are. Let me explain verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians 4. It says, Now this expression, he ascended... What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended, far above all the angels, so he might fill all things. Now, who is Paul referring to? The only person I know in the New Testament who ever ascended to heaven as a cloud received him in, out of sight was none other than Jesus Christ himself. So Paul takes this portion of Scripture from Psalm 68, 18, 
and he applies it to Christ as the one who ascended the hill of victory with the spoils of war and setting captives free. Now, what does ascended in the lower parts mean? Well, you may remember this verse from last week. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient. We know the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient is a reference to bound demons. We remember that from last week. But when Christ's physical body, it died on the cross, his spirit, and by the way, your spirit as well, is eternal, it continued to live on. His spirit descended into the lower parts of the earth, to reference to Hades, and he proclaimed triumph over these bound demons. Now, these bound demons, as you may recall, were those demons that tried to thwart the plan of God. They cohabitated with uh, the daughters of men, and they tried to they bred them, and they had children, and they tried to pollute the line of men so much that the plan of God to save the world from their sins through a God-man would be thwarted. This is why God wiped the world out with the flood except for, the, for Noah and his family. But while in this lower parts of the earth, while in Hades, Christ proclaimed a message and it made an announcement to these bound demons and the message was, as you may recall, what you think is a defeat on the cross is in fact a victory. Then he was resurrected back to life and ascended to the right hand of God. Now, in order to explain this, I want to explain Hayes a little bit more. Because there's something else that Jesus Christ did while in the lower parts of Hades. This is how it impacts Humanity. Have you ever thought to yourself, what happened to an Old Testament saint when they died? An Old Testament believer such as Abraham or David or, or Daniel or any of the prophets, what happened to them when they died? Where do they go? Well, in the Old Testament time, the place of the dead is known as Sheol. It's also translated Hades. Now, we see this in Psalm 49, 13 to 15. I want you to see a sharp distinction between the experience of the, in the realm of the dead, Sheol, of the unrighteous dead and the righteous dead. So this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. This would be reference to the unrighteous dead in Sheol. Yeah, after them, people prove their boast. Like sheep, watch this, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. Look at the contrast. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And this is just one of many verses in the Old Testament. There's not a whole lot of information uh, to define Hades or Sheol. It's also called the grave. And in certain ways, it's also called hell. But that's what the Old Testament says. Now, Psalm 49, this verse right here, it suggests that the wicked in Sheol will remain under the power of Sheol, while the godly 
will eventually be delivered from the power of Sheol. Will be delivered from Hades. Death is like a shepherd, it says, who keeps the ungodly in Sheol, while the godly are what? The ransomed to the presence of God. And this is a clear reference to a resurrection from the dead. Let's take a look at a New Testament verse that further describes a Jewish thinking, and Jesus referenced this, of Sheol and of Hades. You may be familiar with this. The story of the rich man and the story of Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or Sheol, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner had bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you're in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now, what does this tell us about Sheol or about Hades? Well, it's described, obviously, as a place of torment, a place of suffering for the unrighteous dead, but a place of comfort for the righteous dead. Now, this part of Sheol is or it's called, in this parable, Abraham's bosom, and what do we conclude from these two passages, Psalm 49 and Luke 16, about the experience for the wicked and the righteous? Well, for the wicked, it's a place of torment, a place of suffering. Death is their shepherd. He keeps them in Hades. But the righteous dead, they find comfort, and they have hope of being ransomed to the presence of God. They have hope of being resurrected from the dead, freed from the power of Sheol. Now, I want to, just to give you a little bit of an illustration, this might help. Think of Hades or of Sheol as this. The upper half, because there are two experiences in Sheol, it's for the righteous dead, and it's a place of comfort. It's also described as a place of bliss, of happiness. The lower half, we have the unrighteous dead. You have the bound demons from back in the days of Noah, those, those spirits that didn't stay in their place. We went over this extensively last week. And it's a place of suffering. Now, what I want to draw your attention to, as we see the implications of the resurrection of humanity, is this verse right here. From last week, you may remember this, Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, what does it mean 
that Christ made a public spectacle over them. Well, last week you heard me say this. I'm going to go back to this picture here. That Christ's body physically died. It was put in a grave. The stone was rolled in front of the tomb. His spirit went down here. And he proclaimed victory or triumph over these bound demons. And it says that he made a public spectacle of them. Now, what does that mean? And this is where I'm a little bit kind of not guessing here, but, but using theological deduction to say that he made a public spectacle. He announced, he proclaimed his victory over these spirits who tried to thwart him from coming by polluting the line of men. He pronounced his triumph over them. I think also that the loose demons, either are bound demons in the world and there are loose demons, they may have seen this and heard this proclamation. It very well could have been as well that the unrighteous dead were witnessing and hearing Christ's triumph, his announcement. And from Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the unrighteous dead are able to look up into this place of comfort and see the righteous dead. So perhaps even the righteous dead were witnesses to this triumph, this announcement, this proclamation by Jesus of his triumph over them. Now let's go back to Ephesians 4, 7 and 10. Jesus descended into Hades. You just saw that picture up there. Then it says he did what? He ascended. So, let me go back here for you. On his way down to here, where he made his proclamation, he then was resurrected and ascended, and he went up through the upper half of Hades. Well, what happened here? That's where the righteous dead were waiting. What were they waiting for? According to Psalm 49, they were waiting for to be ransomed from the dead, from the power of Sheol. They were waiting to be resurrected from the dead. In the top half of Hades were all the Old Testament saints, King David, Daniel, all the prophets and so on. And what were they waiting for? Well, they could never be resurrected. They could never earn the favor of God. They could never live a righteous enough life. They were waiting for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins. They were waiting to be ransomed. They were waiting for the triumph of the cross. And when Jesus triumphed, after he made his announcement to those bound demons, he opened the doors of the upper half of Sheol or of Hades, and he released those captives. Now remember, what does Ephesians 4 tell us? He led captive a host of captives. It was at this point that the spirits of the Old Testament saints left that upper part of Hades. And they ascended with Jesus into the presence of God. And I can imagine what a joyous scene that would be. We don't understand, I believe, the degree of the party that, parties that go on in heaven. Heaven is a place of joy. It's a place of celebration. Can you imagine what King David's experience must have been? Do you remember how, when he wrote, one thing I ask, one thing I will seek, that I may what? 
dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon his beauty. That hope was fully realized at that moment. He could just dwell, sit in the presence of God and dwell in his presence and just gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I can't imagine what kind of party went on in heaven when that happened. It was quite a joyous scene. Let's finish out the rest of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and 10. Look at verse 10. It says, He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now, what does that mean, that he might fill all things? Let's look at this passage to give us an idea of what that means. Remember this from an earlier sermon. Speaking of the resurrection, that the Father worked this resurrection in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head as, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There we see that phrase again, fills all in all. Clearly, Christ is the one who fills all in all. Christ is the one who dominates the universe. By his victory, he is the one who fills all in all. So from the very bottom of Hades, all the way to heaven, Christ reigns, and he fills all in all. That's what that phrase means. Now, I wanted to make this sermon and close this morning with something that was a little bit practical for us because there are further implications of the resurrection on humanity. So I want to give you five kind of practical application points, if you want to call them that, of the resurrection. Number one, we are now free to use our spiritual gifts. Let me explain this to you. In Ephesians 4, 7, we've been looking at this this morning, it says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You understand the gifts now. He gives gifts to men in his triumph. The grace that was given to us is referring to a spiritual gift. We looked at verses 8 and 9 and 10. Look at verses 11 and 12. These are some of the gifts that he gave to his body, the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Through his death and resurrection, Christ earned the right to rule the church, earned the right and the privilege to give gifts to men. And he get, has given every one of his children a grace gift, a spiritual gift. That gift is to be used to build up to edify the body of Christ. Now, what did it cost Jesus to earn that right? It was his death. And so my point is this. Don't take lightly the use of your spiritual gift. Find out what your gift is if you don't know what it is. Then diligently, faithfully, don't waste the opportunity. Use your gift to build up the church to edify the very body of Jesus Christ.
So you are now free because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to use your spiritual gift. You also are free from what I call legalism. See, Colossians 2.15, again, I went over this verse. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The context of this verse is referring to his victory, Christ's victory over his enemies, frees you from legalism, frees you from following all the rules in, 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 in these principalities and powers that you were subjecting yourself to. Paul says, no, you are free from human regulations. All those rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they lack any power in restraining self-indulgence, he says. The reality is found in Jesus Christ. Seek him, and where is he to be sought? He's at the right hand of God, Paul says. You are free from legalism by the resurrection. You walk by faith in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, you're without hope. You can follow all the rules you want. But as Christians, that doesn't apply to us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are free to live a new life. Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, we were in him on the cross. When he died to sin, and he physically died, we died to sin. Now, when he was raised to life and he ascended to the right hand of God, we were raised to walk in a new life. We have his life in us. We live a holy life. Sin is not our master. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We're slaves to Jesus Christ. So we consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. And that's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, there are more than five points I could give you, but for the sake of time, I'm going to give you five. And I think this next point is really applicable in light of what we're going through with the COVID-19 pandemic, but we are free to hope. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but hope that's, or desire that's realized is like the tree of life. It can be a dangerous thing to hope if it's not fulfilled, but that's not what we have to worry about. We don't worry because our hope is realized. Ephesians 1, 18 to 22. I like this passage. Again, this is a Paul, Paul praying, and he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, he wants us to know. I mean, deep down to the very core of who we are, know what is the hope to which he has called you? 
what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Again, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God has called you to know the hope of your calling. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's so confident of this, he wants you to intimately know the hope of your calling. And he's confident because of what has already happened. The Son of God has already been raised from the dead. He's proven he conquered sin and death. Therefore, diligently, extravagantly hope, because it will be realized. It will be fulfilled. And know the hope of your calling. You know what that is? That's a sweet knowledge of knowing that when I die, I will be with God in heaven. Be in the very presence of God. Is it hoping is it's a sweet knowledge of knowing that when I die, I'll receive an inheritance that will make me rich beyond my wildest imaginations and dreams. And it is a sweet knowledge of knowing by experience on a deeper level the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The same power that raises from the dead is that I want you to know that power. You will know that. And you're going to know it in this life, in the life to come. It's that resurrection power that will bring you to glory. And finally, you can have, be free from doubt concerning your salvation. 2 Corinthians 4.14. Again, there's the word knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus, meaning the Father, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Folks, know that your heavenly Father, who kept his promise, he raised his Son from the dead, the promise-keeping God, the promise-making God, the promise-keeping God, he has also promised to raise us with Jesus Christ and to bring us into his presence. So you are free from any doubt regarding your salvation. We have a loving, wonderful Heavenly Father. Now that's just some of the implications of the resurrection on the Godhead, on angels, and even more implications but again, I'm bound by time here this morning on humanity. And it's wonderful to realize that we are to live resurrected lives and the impact of the resurrection. It is so far-reaching that it should impact us daily, which is why I want you in your application point this week just to spend time each day this week, each day, praising God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Spend time this week meditating on all three sermons if you can. And praise him knowing that you will be with him forever, brought to glory by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is Easter Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection. 
it should not just be one Sunday a year where we remember the resurrection. The implications of the resurrection are so far-reaching, so impactful, so meaningful, so deep that they should permeate every area of our lives. And that is my prayer for us this morning. And today, perhaps as you will have an Easter lunch or Easter dinner, as you bow your heads and pray before your meal, remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ and use your spiritual gift. Walk in the newness of life. Live a life free from legalism. Live a life of faith and a loving relationship with God. Have no doubt about your salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the very Son of God, declared so by the, your resurrection, we praise you this morning. We honor you, and we remember your resurrection from the dead. You are risen. You are alive. And we have life because of what you have done for us. Now may you be glorified in all that we do this day. And please bring to our remembrance the very truth that we are to live daily, moment by moment, resurrected lives. We just pray this simply in the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names that at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord by your resurrection. And all God's people said, amen. Have a blessed Easter Sunday. Enjoy the weather. God bless you.